Hey loves, I'm Marley Liss, and welcome to the Sensual Revolution. This is a global movement to reclaim sensual empowerment on an embodied and systemic level. My personal path of sensuality has not been easy. Shame around my body image, sexual abuse, and my queerness had me dissociated and numbed the heck out. It's been a big journey to get to where I am today, but I really have turned my pain to purpose. Along the way, I've learned our personal healing makes epic waves in this world. This podcast is here to remind you that your healing is selfless. When you learn to shed shame, love your body, and claim your worth, you pave the way for all people to do the same. Here, you can expect to hear from sexual educators and healers who work at the embodied level of sensual empowerment, as well as policymakers and justice leaders who work at the systemic level. It's all connected. So whether you're at the very beginning of your own sensual healing journey, or you're a sex-positive advocate and superstar, this community welcomes you. Let's come together and revolutionize this planet one loving, sensual step at a time. Hello loves, welcome back to another episode of The Sensual Revolution. We have an iconic guest here with us today. Her name is Dr. Rhea Ashley Hoskin, well known for her work around femme theory and femme phobia. Her work examines perceptions of femininity and sources of prejudice rooted in the devaluation or regulation of femininity. She is an Ontario Women's Health Scholar and AMTD Global Talent Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Waterloo. She completed her MA in Gender Studies, her PhD in Sociology. In 2019, she was awarded the Governor General's Academic Gold Medal at Queen's University for her doctoral work. So, very epic human. She even has a recent book called Feminizing Theory, Making Space for Femme Theory, which represents a huge step forward in the field of femme studies. I am so honored to have Dr. Rhea Hoskin on with us today, and as you'll hear in this episode, she played an absolutely huge role in my own journey of claiming my identity as a queer femme and finding a lot of empowerment through expressions of femininity. In this conversation, you'll learn what femme theory actually is, we'll break down femme phobia, we'll look at femme invisibility in and outside of queer spaces, we'll break down some myths around femininity like the idea that femme expressions are fake or just existing for men's attention, and we draw this back to rape culture as well. So no matter what your expression, identity, orientation is, this is a really important conversation for all of us to be having, and it was honestly so transformative for me to learn about Dr. Hoskins' work. So I'm so stoked for you to hear this conversation. Let's get right into it. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to be here with Dr. Hoskin, who, as you will hear, has made like such an incredible impact in our world and in my life specifically. So I'm really excited to have you on today. Um, Dr. Hoskin, I always kind of start with this question, which you can answer in any way that feels good for you today. So who are you in this chapter of your life? 
Well, that's a, that's a big question, but professionally, <laughs> I'm a, an, an AMTD Global, Global Talent Postdoctoral Fellow at the University of Waterloo, where I'm cross-appointed to the Department of Sociology and Legal Studies, as well as Sexuality, Marriage, and Family Studies at St. Jerome's. I'm also a dog mom of three, um, a, a wife to my best friend and uh, colleague, Dr. Karen Blair. Really am living for the language of a wife to my best friend and <laughs> my heart was just like, aw, <laughs> so beautiful. Um, so can you tell us more about the work that you do and like, again, in whatever way makes sense for you today, like what led you to that work? Yeah, absolutely. So broadly speaking, my work focuses on all things femme and femininity. So femme histories, femme identities, how femme identities have contributed to the development of femme theory and the concept of femme phobia. And in terms of what led me to this work, well, really my own identity as femme really led me to do what I'm doing. So, you know, existing in the spaces that didn't always feel so welcoming, like in feminist spaces, in my women's studies classes, even in queer spaces, Mm-hmm. And in, like even in my undergraduate degree, I noticed how femininity and femme experiences were completely overlooked or completely misrepresented in the queer and feminist theories that I was exposed to. So I made it my goal to make this better and to promote femme visibility within academia as well as within queer and feminist spaces and to gain more recognition um, for the rich understanding of femininity that we offer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for that. And like, I can honestly say that you are doing that. And just, just interestingly, I was obviously thinking a lot about like femme identity and everything leading up to this interview. And I had a dream last night that people kept telling me that I look straight there. Just like, you're not straight, (laughs) you know? And And in my dream, I like went off on a rant about like femme like what it means to be femme and all these things and I was like wow this is so interesting and and I didn't have that languaging before your work I was just like oh yeah I look straight like because I don't look masculine so it's it's really um it's really transformative work can you define for us and I know this might be like a bigger question than it seems but can you define for us what femme actually means and what femme theory is yeah so I can, but at the same time, I I am cautious of how definitions differ, uh, you know, by person to person, but also across histories and across cultures and communities. Um, So I can provide my definition, uh, but of course, with this important caveat. Uh, So in my work, I look at all of the varied ways that people invoke femme identity and specifically what brings them together. So what do they have, have in common? What unifies each of these identities? Because they're equally distinct from each other. Um, And what I argue is that what unites them is a particular relationship to femininity that's marked in some way by challenging. So challenging the norms of society or how society tries to prescribe femininity to particular bodies or identities. Um, So for example, the idea that femininity is supposed to be the domain or the property of cisgender heterosexual white women who perform it for men's attention. Mm-hmm. And because I see femininity as, a, as an identity that challenges the norms of femininity, I also see, see it as a, a queer femininity that's reclaimed by culturally marginalized folks who 
for one reason or another have been told that they're not supposed to be feminine. So how that kind of grows into femme theory, uh, well, femme theory really evolved from femme communities and femme ways of knowing. It came from thinking about femininity from all of these multiple vantage points that make up femme identities. And by looking at each of those vantage points, it, it gives us a framework to understand femininity in, in a more inter intersectional way. Mm -hmm. um, and it also gives us a framework to understand how femininity is regulated, um, how it's informed by power structures, and how it's systematically devalued um, in ways that um, are similar to how women are devalued, but also distinct, and it's important to, uh, to recognize those distinctions. Yeah, thank you. There's like so much in it. Um, and love for folks to hear a bit about your own journey with internalizing femphobia, if that was a thing for you and like glorifying masculinity. And I remember hearing you on the Do We Know Things podcast. Um, shout out to Lisa <laughs> Dawn, amazing human, who's also on this podcast. Um, but yeah, and and just you sharing about how like you didn't recognize your queerness because of them and visibility. And that just like hit me in the gut when you said that, like I actually mm -hmm. sent that episode to so many people and was like, I've never heard my experience be put into words like this. And I just think it's so potent. Yeah. So anything you want to share around like your own journey with, with that and that kind of internalized invisibility. Mm -hmm. I think like a lot of femmes go through that in one way or another, um, kind of in unique ways, but there, it does kind of echo through femme experiences of not being able to reconcile their femininity in one way. Um, but for the most part, I was really lucky in, with respect to internalized femphobia and glorification of masculinity um, that is so deeply ingrained in everything we do um, as a society and how we think and how we organize life. Um, but I was lucky enough to be raised by two badass feminists, my grandma and my mom, uh, mm -hmm. who initially actually dressed me in pretty gender neutral clothes. Um, but once recognizing my affinity for femininity, my mom gave me full reign and autonomy over my gender expression and my clothing choice. Um, and so in many ways, she was very much committed to supporting me exactly as I am. And as I've said elsewhere, I'm not sure if it was in uh, Do We Know Things podcast, but as I've said elsewhere, um, I've always been really grateful uh, for my mom for accepting my femininity just as it is and never making it about seeking men's attention or as being unfeminist mm -hmm. um, or something that I needed to temper in one way or another because femininity is always walking that tightrope of being too much or too little and it's constantly having to temper itself based on context based on bodies based on identities mm -hmm. Um, but she really valued my femininity as a form of self-expression. And I think that stuck with me um, all throughout kind of my life and through my academic career. Yeah. But despite having this uh, feminist upbringing, my femininity, uh, as you mentioned, was the most confusing part of my sexuality. Mm -hmm. um, so again, going back to my childhood, my mom taught me about you know sexual diversity I was raised around queer people and feminists but I still didn't see myself among any of those people 
Um, and it wasn't actually until I discovered the term femme through femme life writings and memoirs that mm -hmm. that part of me that I had not really been able to make sense of or that felt misshapen uh, began to feel like it fit. Um, so I think that my journey with internalized femphobia was about seeing queer femme possibilities or not seeing them at least in the beginning. Mm -hmm. Like also important, I just want to say like, it's really beautiful to hear about that experience with your mom and your grandma giving you that like free reign of gender expression, like mm -hmm. from neutrality to choice. Like mm -hmm. that, I think that's such a rare narrative that we don't get to hear. And I also think there's something about not being believed when it comes mm -hmm. to really liking these things. Like, I feel like, you know, like as a kid, like I was like literally collecting sparkles and like wearing these like <laughs> pink dresses. And I think once I um, dove deeper into like feminist rhetoric, there was a clear idea of like, you don't actually like those things. You've just been conditioned to like mm -hmm. them. Um, yeah. And now I'm like, no, no, I like them. <laughs> yeah. And that was so confusing to me that like, and actually to a lot of parents, I think, uh, when they see the little girl that they're, they've raised um, actually enjoying femininity, um, you know, because they were also taught that that's, that's brainwashing, that's the patriarchy. Um, so having to grapple with the fact that people do like femininity sometimes, and um, it happens sometimes to coincide with the fact that they were assigned female at birth. Um, sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it has nothing to do with being a woman. Uh, mm -hmm. Sometimes it does. Um, but we need to open up the possibility that some people do enjoy femininity and they love it and that's okay, um, yeah. which it sounds so simple, but I think that it's a, a big problem that has um, kind of so many implications in broader, in the broader world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially like so potent around that piece of femininity being something that anyone can enjoy and connect with regardless of gender like assigned gender at birth like you're saying and I think there's so much uh like cultural complexity that's been given to that and and like violence which we'll talk a bit about but like can you share more about some of the ways that femphobia shows up in the world and like the ways that the regulation and denigration of femininity persist Hello loves, just jumping in to tell you about the 2S LGBTQIA community space that Eva Bloom and myself have created. The Fuck Compet Support Club is an epic space to connect with fellow queer and questioning humans, to build community and to process Compet, which is short for compulsory heterosexuality. This space is just $10 per month and you'll get access to a guided monthly Zoom call and an ongoing Discord space for connection. There's always so much gorgeous community and chats happening in that space. So go to patreon.com slash support club, spelled as I said it, but minus the U in fuck, or to make things easy for yourself, just click the link in the show notes. Here you'll find more details and you'll be able to join there. We'd love to welcome you in, whether you've been out for years, are exploring new depths of your queerness, or are questioning your sexuality right now, this space is for you. You truly do belong, and we'd be so excited to welcome you into the club. So in addition to, um, like aside from my own personal journey to um, 
kind of reconcile those pieces of myself and my femininity and my sexuality and seeing myself and finding community, I think that um, the process of unlearning um, internalized femphobia and um, the valuing of masculinity is a never ending journey. And uh, as a femme researcher, I, um, I owe it to my community to constantly unpick those assumptions that I continue to hold about femininity because I really think that we all hold them no matter how um, deeply we've read about femmes, about queer femininity. Um, and they're very much informed by race, by ableism, by class, by heteronormativity and every other social location imaginable. So I continuously question my language and my assumptions. Even as you mentioned, um, your dream, something so seemingly silly and trivial that we throw around day to day, like someone looks gay or looks queer, carries so much meaning, even in terms of how it connects to sexual violence, which we'll get into a bit more, hopefully. Yeah. Um, but there's also how we talk about femmes as challenging the idea um, that femininity is frail and vulnerable, which is very important. Like we need to challenge the idea that femininity is frail and vulnerable, but also at the same time, what's wrong with being vulnerable? And are we not just finding femininity um, valuable by masculinizing it as my friend and colleague, Dr. Scott uh, might ask? How is the devaluation um, of vulnerability itself tied to the glorification of youth and abled bodies? Mm -hmm. Or when we talk about challenging vulnerability and frailty, we, we need to recognize that that's actually very rooted in white notions of femininity because femininities of color are not always seen as vulnerable and frail. And it's actually quite the opposite in ways that deny their humanity. So these are so powerful. There's like so much to all of it. And like, yeah, I think it's very real that it's like that classic uh, fish in water example, like the fish doesn't realize that it's in water, right? And like, I think that discovering your work is kind of what that did for me. I was just like, whoa, this, this is everywhere. Like, yeah, yeah, like. Oh, that's amazing. It is amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, like it it really showed me that. And and yeah, these like you're saying, these things that seem very subtle and I always say this word wrong, like minute, minute, whatever, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, are actually pretty significant. And something I notice is like that I've had a tendency to call a lot of the more feminine like clothing items or accessories I'm, I'm drawn to in the past I've called them obnoxious and now I'm realizing that a lot mm. of the things that I call obnoxious what I'm actually saying is that they're femme and I was oh. like oh what an association like this like mm -hmm. bright pink purse I'm like oh it's so obnoxious mm -hmm. um and so shifting that language has been really powerful and like way more kind to myself as well that's fascinating and I actually think that I've referred to like hyper feminine over the topness as obnoxious. I know I've, I've used that. I've never thought about it, but that's a really good example of having to continuously um, step back and look at how we're talking about femininity for a minute. And what does that mean that we're, you know, something that's really feminine is obnoxious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a common one that mm -hmm. like a lot of us describe certain people as obnoxious when actually it's hyper femininity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
really interesting. Um, is there anything else that you want to share around like how femphobia shows up in the world? Oh yeah, I've got lots to say about that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so first I, in my work, um, and again, femphobia is defined in all sorts of ways. In my work, I define, uh, femphobia as referring to the systematic way society devalues and regulates femininity across bodies and identities. So for example, we use femininity to mock and symbolically demote men in power because we see femininity as inferior. And I mean, we've all seen those memes where Trump is uh, photoshopped to wear makeup, mm -hmm. um, but we don't really question why we're using femininity to take him down. And it's because we see femininity as inferior. Mm -hmm. um, so at the same time, we tightly regulate femininity. It's supposed to be performed by cisgender heterosexual white women, but their skirt can't be too short and it can't be too long and they can't be too feminine if they want to be seen as intelligent and competent. Um, but they have to be seen as somewhat feminine or there are repercussions on that end as well. Mm -hmm. So it's tightly, tightly regulated across bodies and identities. And in terms of who can claim femininity, um, when they fall outside of the purview of how society would like femininity to be performed. Mm -hmm. um, and if they fall outside of that purview, it, it, they face stigmatization, harassment, and even violence. Mm -hmm. So in terms of femphobia, um, of course, the term itself came from fem communities and experiences, but through fem theory and theorizing across those multiple kind of vantage points of fem, uh, the term has evolved into a concept that's used to tackle the way society treats femininity broadly. So kind of a, a femme uh, perspective turned outwards or a femme lens that's used to understand how femininity is treated in society. Um, and, you know, femme phobia is so deeply ingrained in everything that we do that it's almost impossible to identify like that fish in, fish in dirty water. Is that the analogy? <laughs> Um, so without having that femme perspective to challenge the myths of femininity and the assumptions and the language that we use, like femmes kind of are raising their hand and saying, like, we need to rethink, we need to rethink this, we need to call our attention to it and see what's happening. Um, so that's why I value femme perspective so much is that they make visible what's just otherwise dirty water. Yeah, yay femme perspectives. Yeah. <laughs> that way too. Like I think the power of representation and storytelling is everything. And like like you were saying with, with your own narrative around like claiming sexuality and everything, like just yeah, what would I wonder what it would have been like to grow up in a world where there was way more femme representation and narratives and like yeah, and and like um validity around mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. Because even when we see it, it's discounted in a variety of ways. Like, you know, there were femmes on the L word, but most of the criticisms and the media criticism focused on how um, the L word was fake representation because there weren't, you know, enough masculine folks on, on the show, which is equally true, but it should have been an additive approach. So we need more masculine representation on the L word versus the representation that's there is fake. Right. Um, do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, the, yeah, both can be true, 
Um, but we don't need to take down the femmes in the process. We need to see them as equally valid. Yeah, that's a really powerful example. And that kind of, yeah, the, the erasure of just like, this is fake. And, mm-hmm. so, and that's, that's the same as the sort of like, you look straight rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Ooh, so interesting. Um, what are like one or two of the biggest myths that you hear about femme identity and how would you respond to those? Well, there are so many myths and assumptions about femininity and femme identity um, that it's it's really hard to pick two. Uh, So maybe I'll go with the ones that I come up against um, both in my work and in my life. And the first, and I mean, you've experienced this too, you dream about it. It's that um, someone can look gay or doesn't look gay. And as queer community members, as feminists, as scholars, we know that gender expression is separate from sexual orientation and gender identity. We can we know that conceptually, but we don't apply that in our day-to-day lives, which seems really odd to me. We continue to see feminine men as gay, feminine women as straight. We also see feminine men as not real men, feminine women as fake lesbians, fake feminists, mockeries of real women, and feminine non-binary people as fake or just after attention. And So ultimately we see femininity and feminine people as fake. And Mm -hmm. we see being feminine as something that's exclusively for men's attention. And that's a really big problem. Like think for a second about what those assumptions can contribute to like rape culture and the idea that a short skirt or heavy makeup means someone is asking to it because of course we see femininity as done for man's attention. We see it as fake. It's not a self-actualized expression. It's someone making themselves into an object for men's attention. And so we really need to start challenging those assumptions because you can trace them all the way into rape culture, but we don't really, we're not putting enough effort into tracing what those, what those statements mean. Yeah. I was just going to say that feels really potent. And I'm just, I, I recently watched Legally Blonde the musical. Have you seen it? Oh, I haven't. I'm so jealous. <laughs> okay, so good. I'll like send you a link to it. It's like on YouTube oh. for free. It's very good. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, I'll have to watch that. But that feels like potent femme grounds as well. And just the ways that they're even like, you know, not taking her seriously when she wears like the full pink uh tracksuit and then like in order for her to buckle down and get serious like you know just like a little bit like shifts away from the pink and gets more like darker Mm -hmm. colors and whatever and it's just it is really interesting and what you said about this assumption of of like yeah it's like not taking people seriously um Mm -hmm. or assuming that people are faking things and I think like the point you made about more femme presenting non-binary people being told that they're just asking for attention like that's mm-hmm. such that's such an uh, like the word I'm thinking of is just like unkind like it's such an unkind dismissive rhetoric to hold mm-hmm. it is and even uh, I mean when people have uh, she they pronouns that we think that they're just virtue signaling or that they just want to uh, seem politically aligned or something, but in in some way or another, we continuously dismiss um, the realities and the truths of feminine people. Um, And again, we can see how that contributes to discourses of rape culture and not believing people and writing off their experiences and 
and those sorts of things. So I think that there's a lot of parallel in the treatment of femininity and how we see um, those supporting many of those discourses. Yeah, yeah. Another parallel I can think or just like a tangible life example with exactly what you're saying is like my own experience in court with for sexual assault and being told to dress a certain way. Right? Mm -hmm. It was like, do not dress super feminine, like come in like neutral, gray, turtleneck, like hair up, not too much makeup, like this very clear, yeah, it just feels like a very tangible life example of like exactly what you're describing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually, I have a study that's ongoing right now, where we're looking at, uh, we're looking specifically at women's, um, but including uh, cis, trans and non-binary women, Mm -hmm. um, experiences of pressure to be more masculine or less feminine. And it's coming across each of those domains. Like we're seeing it um, in terms of avoiding sexual assault or further sexual assault, um, feeling safer in, in public, walking the streets, walking alone. So in terms of safety, um, also in terms of the workplace, um, wanting to appear confident, being taken seriously, seen as intelligent. Um, so they're modulating their femininity um, mm -hmm. to avoid or promote those things. Um, yeah. But again, we, because we only really talk about femininity in one way as women's source of oppression, we're not getting at that balancing act that a lot of women have to, have to walk um, in terms of their femininity and trying to avoid violence and also trying to um, appear confident and being taken seriously and listened to. Mm -hmm. Wow, it really is everywhere. And like, <laughs> really, like we all know those. We all mm -hmm. know the, like, uh, like spoken and unspoken rules of don't dress like this for a job interview and mm -hmm. those narratives, yeah. Um, so for the second myth, um, there's also this assumption that femme women use their femininity to conceal their sexual orientation, um, you know, because they're seen as being more in the closet or having higher levels of internalized homophobia. And I've done a few studies now exploring this, and I have not found that to be the case. Actually, I found that femmes want to be seen and they want to be recognized. And feminine visibility is an issue that femmes have fought for for decades, but we still mistake their femininity as them being closeted, um, despite the growing body of research that says otherwise. Mm -hmm. And, you know, femmes and feminine people are often kind of just seen as being brainwashed, as, as we discussed, um, as being superficial, as not giving much attention to their gender expression but I've studied femmes for over a decade now, and I assure everyone that that's not the case. Uh, femmes actually think so much and so deeply um, and have such brilliant understandings of their femininity, but we underestimate their worth across so many domains, um, including academia. Mm -hmm. Yes, I'm, I'm very happy about this interview. I'm like, retweet, everyone listen. <laughs> <Everyone>. <laughs> It's so, it's so important and it's so real. And I, I mean, even I'm just thinking of like being on TikTok and there's kind of people will say all the time, you know, like you're saying, how can I like signal, how can I let people know I'm queer? Right. Because like, yeah, we want to feel seen and we want to be able to connect with our community and like potential romantic and flirtation experiences and things. 
So like, yeah, we want people to kind of recognize or have those moments up there like, okay, that person looks queer. And so often the advice is like, put on a beanie, cut your hair short, put on a plaid shirt, like wear docks, like all (laughs) this, this kind of stuff that's going in the opposite direction of, of femininity and feminism. Mm -hmm. So I think one time I saw a video, um, where someone was like, celebrate your femininity even more. And people were like, that's so nice. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) Yeah. So I know that we've already like talked about this a solid amount, but um, yeah, is there anything else you want to share around like how this all plays into queer identity? Yeah. Um, so from my research, these myths really translate into exclusion for queer people uh, because we see femme as fake, as superficial, as brainwashed, as uh, wanting to conceal identity and all of those things. Uh, femmes are treated like outsiders. People are suspicious of dating them. Uh, for femme gay men, they're reduced to a stereotype that other gay men want to distance themselves from. So whichever way you cut it, and given that there are so many diverse ways of being femme, you can cut it many ways, um, the assumptions or stereotypes or myths that we have about femmes translate into exclusion and feeling of otherness uh, within and outside of the places that femmes yearn to call home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you for that. Yeah. It's so important. Um, what is like so revolutionary and badass about being a queer femme? <laughs> well, that could be an entire episode in itself. Uh, such a good question. Uh, but I actually, I think that it was Dr. Dahl, who first said that uh, femmes turn assumptions about femininity on their head. And I think to me, at least, that's really what femme does. So, and that's a big part of what's revolutionary about femme. So they expose these assumptions that we hold that inform our day-to-day lives in ways that are both small and mundane, uh, but also in terms of the organization of society and how we systematically enact violence or devalue traits or groups of people. And Femmes know this and doing research with femme communities is so incredibly important because it's like they've been waiting for someone to listen, for someone who cares, and they have a lot to say. Um, So as I've said before, femmes are the philosophers of their own lives and they've just been kicked out of the spaces where they should be listened to and respected. Mm, Yes. Ooh, I feel very empowered by this. (laughs) Yes. Um, how, so this is my big question and I know that we've like kind of started talking about it, but how might femphobia play into gender-based violence? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think about it, so much of gender-based violence includes an element of femininity or feminization. Like I keep going back to this example, but um, it's a really good one and parallels really well. So think about rape culture. Um, So much of the discourses revolve around femininity, like someone's skirt is too short or their makeup is too heavy. And that's again, taken to mean asking for it. The basis of that assumption is that femininity is done for men for the purpose of attracting men. Um, But femmes counter that logic 
their femininity is not necessarily for men, especially for femme lesbians. Mm -hmm. And if we take femme perspectives into account, this is completely illogical. So we need to start challenging this thinking and we need to account for femme existence. Mm -hmm. um, if we look at experiences of gender-based violence rooted in sexism or misogyny, it, those can be connected to the way society devalues and regulates uh, feminized people as a group. Um, so like objectification, for example, of women is tied to femininity being done for others in the service of others. Um, their bodies are no longer their own. They're an object for someone else. And that's often done through um, femininity and our understandings or interpretations of femininity for as for others. Um, but again, femme existence challenges this logic. Yeah, that's so wild too, that like expression of femininity is also somehow within this rape culture, like justified, um, justifies like non-consent. Like it's just this sort of like, oh, well, this person was wearing pink and therefore they like deserved sexual violence. Like what is this rhetoric? It's so um, ridiculous. And, it, and it's something that we've like normalized to a degree that nobody like, if I went to court and I told people I was gonna wear like a pink metallic shirt with like a v-neck or whatever everyone would be like no 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 like don't do you can't do that like it's that mm -hmm. normalized and ingrained in our culture that everyone's on board with like no you don't want to dress feminine for court related to sexual violence because you wearing pink like equates to you lying about this assault or having deserved it like that's a very yeah. it's wild Mm -hmm. And we can connect that um, to how femininity is treated like across bodies and identities and our assumptions about femininity um, is not credible, is not uh, listened to. I mean, we can see that in across multiple domains um, that that's the case. So we need to start identifying the weaving thread of femininity that's going through each of these examples and each of these discourses, uh, because I think it was... Julia Serrano, who, who said that uh, the treatment of fem femininity masquerades as other sorts of oppressions. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that's why we're not able to identify it so easily, because we call it homophobia, we call it sexism or misogyny, we call it rape culture, um, and we're not looking at what's unifying them. Right. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes it is homophobia, transphobia, rape culture, and so on. Um, but at the same time, we need to pay attention to what's bringing these together. And I think that a lot of meaningful change could happen if we paid more attention to femininity as, as the culprit in some of these situations. Yeah, it's definitely something like this is another reason I was I am so excited to have you on to this podcast is like it's really not talked about. I just like it you know I've spent like a lot of time in the realms of like challenging sexual violence and challenging rape culture and sexism and talking feminism and like it's somehow never come up which is so yeah it has to change mm -hmm. and that's really kind of what I, I was feeling in my undergrad when I you know set out to study femmes is why aren't we including their perspectives? Because those, those perspectives would change every, the way that we're talking about everything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. 
Yeah, I know you already mentioned this a bit, but can you share more on like, how does this play into homophobia and transphobia as well? Yeah, um, so because we see femininity is acceptable in this one model, like again, femininity is supposed to be done for men, it's supposed to be expressed by cisgender, heterosexual, white women um, in ways that are desirable, but not themselves desiring because then society sees that slutty. Um, I can go on and on. It's supposed to be white, thin, able-bodied, all of those intersections that make up the norms of how patriarchal world would like femininity to be performed. So when the world sees femininity expressed in ways that are running or seen as running counter to these norms, like femininity in men, for example, or femininity in people assigned male at birth, regardless if they're cisgender, transgender, and regardless of their sexual orientation, that femininity is regulated. And as I said, we call that transphobia or homophobia or toxic masculinity. And sometimes that's what it is, but, and sometimes it has nothing to do with femininity, but sometimes we need to pay better attention to the fact that femininity is, or has the capacity to bring these things together. Um, and as well as so much of the gender-based violence that we see in the world. I think it really asks us to reflect on the ways that like each of us polices gender expression too. And I think it was through like RuPaul bringing more transgender representation and that I was having some of these conversations with friends and just like the way that, mm, the way that people are like caught off guard and confused about, for example, like someone being a trans man who loves femininity and mm -hmm. being like wait that doesn't make sense because of the binaries that we're still holding mm -hmm. so I think it's like really powerful to just like reflect on that and let some of those like binaries and like the policing that we're doing to each other go and I mm -hmm. think it just weaves into that a lot so yeah reflecting on the ways that like I've perpetuated that in the past and just like, why is it so confusing to us? Like what, or, yeah, I don't know. Mm. But if you, and yeah, I've encountered that too with, I think it was Gottmik, um, the confusion around that. And I've had to kind of walk, walk a few people through that. And I also know a few, I mean, trend, um, I know a few trans men who transitioned, but uh, as they were kids, they they liked theater and they liked dolls and they liked feminine things um but they were a feminine boy that had not transitioned yet um but they had to suppress the parts of themselves that enjoyed femininity to be seen as an authentic yeah boy or man in order to transition and then it was after they transitioned that they were able to kind of rekindle um their femininity and were able to express it again um, so I find that really interesting, all the ways that people are forced to, to suppress their femininity across different identities and bodies. Yeah, it's, it's so, it's so powerful. I've, I've shared this before, but like I live, when I first came out as lesbian, I like literally got an undercut. <laughs> I was like, this is not me at all. But I was just like, I was like, I guess I have to be masked. Like, <laughs> like, so not my authentic expression but it's just like 
this deep belief and yeah all the things in our culture that are asking us to like give up our femininity and like in that example like telling that telling a transgender man that in order to be valid like he has to give up his femininity like it's just so yeah it's Mm -hmm. it's so um important the work that you're doing and like these conversations um I'm really curious how has the research community responded to the work that you do yeah, so generally really well, um, though things were a bit rocky at the beginning, and I'm not sure if that's because I was a junior scholar or if it was a bit of gatekeeping, but um, originally I experienced a fair amount of difficulty publishing on femmes and femininity in ways that didn't echo pre- previous understandings of these terms. So mm-hmm. for instance, talking about femininity outside of its role as women's uh, source of oppression which is of course very important and we need to continue talking about that, but that's only one part of the story. Um, or talking about femmes beyond cisgender, feminine, lesbians, um, of course, that's also important and we need to acknowledge that history and those communities, or as Dr. Andy Schwartz calls our four femmes, um, a term that I love. Mm-hmm. Um, but we also need to recognize that femmes that exist um beyond this model do exist femmes are very diverse and we can't just you know turn our heads and say that they don't exist we need to talk about them Mm -hmm. Um, so i experienced a bit of gatekeeping in that way Um, at the same time i do think that i've i've made quite a bit of progress in terms of that original uh gatekeeping that i came up against Um, Mm -hmm. in many ways my work has been really well received i've received many awards uh for my work on femme theory um, Mm -hmm. and i've published pretty extensively in ways that are recognized by academics. And I don't say that to brag or anything, uh, but to make the bigger point, because still despite these things, when I first meet people, including perhaps especially fellow academics, um, they find out my work focuses on femininity and femmes. And there's a fair bit of trivialization that happens in those conversations Mm -hmm. as though focusing on femininity couldn't possibly be important work or that my work is somehow less capable of making a contribution, less rigorous, less less intellectual. Femmes day to day in so many ways prove them wrong. Femme scholarship proves them wrong. And I'm so happy to be exactly where I am and in in the position that I'm in where I can help to move femme voices to the front of academic discussions on gender. And then thinking outside of the academy, how my work has been received by femme communities. Um, and that's largely been an expression of gratitude. I, I receive a number of emails or messages every week from friends thanking me for my work, uh, for giving them a voice, for giving them language to express their experiences, um, which is so um, important to me and means so much. Uh, so when I come up against academics thinking work on femmes is trivial. Um, It's the femme communities that I think about. It's the femme communities that fuel me. Um, And I think, I really think that the academic world just really needs to catch up with femmes. Yeah, I love that. That's so beautiful. And I can like really relate with um, my work as well. And work that shouldn't be controversial being deemed controversial, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, Interesting that that femme phobia is like being embodied the moment you share about the research that you do. Yeah. 
And then at the same time, there's so much affirmation that the work that you do is so needed because of that response and because of like the femme community's response being like, thank God for this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt that as well with like survivor communities around mm. justice and sexual violence and having, you know, a lot of people be like, oh, what is this kind of fluffy approach to justice? Like, which I, I would be curious, like I, I just feel a seed planted to be like, wow, I wonder about the ways that restorative justice like embodies elements of femininity and things we've typically mm-hmm. associated with femme expression um mm-hmm. there is that like vulnerability and humanity and like an interconnectedness and versus kind of a top-down hierarchy punitive model which is very masculinist um in its yeah. kind of approach so yeah. i can see that parallel in kind of in approaches um and how they're coded in gendered ways yeah yeah it's so it's so interesting and then it's the exact same thing where the survivor community keeps being like oh my gosh I needed to hear this I needed to know about this I needed this Mm -hmm. yeah it's so beautiful that that like keeps us going and even though the pushback sucks sometimes it also affirms how much the work is needed which is yeah yeah so interesting. So how can people like connect more with femininity or, and, or play a role in challenging femphobia? That's a great question. Um, and also a hard one because where do you even begin to connect to your femininity when the world is structured around privileging masculinity and shutting down emotions? Even, you know, those examples that we just spoke of, um, everything is kind of coded in these masculine and feminine ways, and we very much privilege the masculine ways. Um, so I think that just starting to see and name femphobia is a great first step. Uh, we now have a word for this. So let's start identifying it in ourselves and others um, and start to unpack it a little bit. I, I also really like to flip the script a bit here. So one of my favorite exercises to challenge uh, femphobia is to think about the great things that are feminine mm-hmm. uh, and what a better place the world would be if femininity were valued and encouraged and celebrated for everyone. There's um, This exercise is actually featured in a femphobia workbook that I've been designing with my colleagues, doctors uh, Karen Blair, Jocelyn Scott, Tony Serafini, and the brilliant artist Cynthia Zhang. And the workshop or the workbook is intended to help people uh, work through some of their assumptions about femininity, to recognize the subtle ways that we devalue and regulate femininity, and to also start valuing femininity, which is a really, really important part for me. Mm-hmm. The, the workbook is almost done, and once it's done, it will be freely available to download on my website, or if you want to purchase a hard copy. And I think also it's important to, um, when trying to connect with femininity, uh, read fem narratives. Like uh, Laura Brightwell and Dr. Allison Taylor said, fem stories matter. And if there's one, I mean, there's multiple takeaways from this discussion, but I think for me, a key one is, is that we start to listen to femmes and valuing their perspectives. So go straight to the source, read fem writing, cite femmes, incorporate their perspectives, their wisdom, their daily lives into the social narrative mm-hmm. uh, because they do matter. And I think that they have the capacity to change the world. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Hey, thank you for that. <laughs> for just like, yeah, uplifting 
femme voices on the planet and it is it is so needed and it is oh my god there's just so I I know for everyone listening like this this just sparks so many thoughts and like this is another whole whole rabbit hole but I just think about the ways that like femininity is simultaneously like commodified and like um people are like obsessed with it in a way and then also it's just like totally denigrated and like Mm. put down and it's interesting that it's like seen as the most like sought after thing and the least respected Mm -hmm. and so many of my participants um or participants in my studies have talked about that um like the paradox of femininity and going back again to that tightrope like it's simultaneously consumable yet disposable so it's highly sought after but it's um you know the the gum under our shoe or something like that we want to get rid of and is meaningless despite uh being so commodified um so it's it's extremely paradoxical and i think it keeps um feminine people constantly having to juggle competing ideas of femininity i think that keeps them out of the realms of power i think it keeps them unstable um and I think it keeps them oppressed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I really appreciate what you said too about just like having the language of like that's femphobic. And I think I think coming back to my dream, like that's what it that's about. Because yeah, I'm sure like yeah, I have just had so many experiences of people being like, oh, you look straight, or like you know, even like dating queer, more mask presenting people, and then being like, oh, like you're my type, like you look straight, like this kind of thing, and mm-hmm. the ways that I respond now are very different. Having this language, like, oh, that's actually like you know, like femme erasure, like that's like a little mm-hmm. bit, but let's talk about it, like, um, and so I just I do think there's so much like power and potential allyship or like if people identify as more femme like so much empowerment and claiming the language so thank you for sharing that (laughs) um is there anything else that you want to share before we wrap up and definitely we'll talk about ways that people can like connect with you and your work as well um no just thank you so much for having me and for um highlighting femmes in on your platform it's it's really important and i'm very grateful for the people who who interview me and who promote femme scholarship and who promote femme voices and visibility um so thank you yeah my pleasure i'm so excited about it and like shout out to eva bloom um who was on my <laughs> podcast and is a dear friend that i collaborate with as well um but yeah they were the one who was kind of like I think I was just preaching a whole bunch of like internalized femphobia. <laughs> and I was like, have you heard of <laughs> And then I was like, okay, this is really transformative to hear about your work. So it, it's such an honor to, to interview you and to be connected. And I'm really grateful for your work in the world. Thank you. Yeah. So tell us how can people connect with you and your work? Yeah, so I actually see connecting with people and connecting people with my work to be a really important part of what I do as a femme scholar. I want femme theory and femme phobia to help people to identify parts of themselves and their experiences and to not just sit in an ivory tower unread. 
So, you know, femme theory came out of marginalized uh, communities. It's really important that it contributes back to, to those communities. Uh, but speaking directly to your question, uh, people can connect with me on Twitter and on Instagram or Facebook, um, Femme Research or Femme underscore Innist is my Twitter. Mm -hmm. I'm also happy to chat over email if people have questions or looking for resources or just want to say hello. And if you are interested in my work, I post a bit, I post about it on uh, my social media accounts. And I also post my articles on my websites, along with ongoing studies if people want to participate. Amazing. And I'll definitely put links to all that in the show notes so that it's great for people as well. Thank you again for this amazing conversation and for everything you do. And thank you to everyone for listening. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening, loves. I hope that you received as much education, clarity, empowerment, and light bulb moments from everything Dr. Hoskins shared like I did. So much power in that and so many incredible resources provided as well. So definitely lean into those. Check out the links in the show notes. I always really appreciate shares and reviews of the podcast in order to amplify these voices and conversations. Thank you so much for listening and get ready for another epic episode next week.